Welcome to ID the Future, a podcast about intelligent design and evolution. Hello, and thanks for joining us. As the famous long-term evolution experiment conducted by Richard Lenski and colleagues at Michigan State University finally yielded new evidence for the Darwinian mechanism of unguided evolution? Or is it further proof that Darwin's theory is in a death spiral? Today I'm welcoming back biochemist Michael Behe, professor of biological sciences at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania and a senior fellow at Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. Behe is author of Darwin's Black Box, The Edge of Evolution, and most recently, Darwin Devolves, The New Science About DNA That Challenges Evolution. Michael, welcome back to ID the Future. Thanks, Andrew. It's always great to be with you folks. You recently reported at Evolution News about a new paper by biologist Richard Lenski and his collaborators concerning the further evolution of a widely discussed mutant strain of the bacterium E. coli discovered during the course of a three-decades-long research project. First, can you give listeners who may not yet be familiar with Lenski's work a brief introduction to this project? Sure. Most people think that evolution occurs too slowly to watch, and and so it's it's rife with speculation, speculation about how evolution occurs. But way back in 1990, 30 years or so ago, this fellow Richard Lenski at Michigan State got the idea to grow bacteria in a flask. And he came in and took some of the bacteria from the flask and put it in fresh broth. And he did that the next morning and the next and the next. And he's been doing it for the past 30 years, he and, and his students and colleagues. And he did it simply to watch how the bacteria might change, how they might evolve. And the reason was that bacteria can reproduce much more quickly than larger organisms. The bacteria in his lab went through six or seven generations in one day. And currently it's up past 50,000 generations, close to 70,000 at this point. And he wanted to see what mutations might come along and, and what they would do. And, and not only do the bacteria grow quickly, but they grow in very, very large numbers. In one flask in his lab, there might be 100 million bacteria. He saw that there were a number of changes occasionally in the bacteria and that these would sweep through the population so that there were mutations and some of them helped. So classic Darwinian evolution, that a helpful change comes along, the bacteria or the organism outgrows its competitors and takes over the population. Uh, it wasn't until the 2000s, however, that he was able to determine what those mutations were. You have to remember that mutations are changes in DNA, changes in molecules, DNA and the proteins that the genes of DNA code for. And it wasn't until the 2000s that techniques were developed to readily sequence DNA so that one can track down such mutations. And interestingly, over the years, he identified maybe oh, 30 to 40 different mutations that actually helped. But 
it turns out that the great majority of those, maybe all of them, were ones that either broke or degraded genes that were already there. That is, they they were destroying genetic information rather than building it. And in the circumstances, that actually helped so that these bugs with decreased genetic information uh, outgrew the ones, uh, the original strain. Okay, that's interesting. Well, one of Lansky's E. coli flasks was growing at a faster rate than the others. What was happening to cause this? Yes, uh, after 30,000 generations or so, uh, they came into the lab one morning and they noticed that one of the flasks, he had 12 replicate flasks for comparison and for replicability's sake. But and one of the flasks was a lot cloudier than the others, which meant that there were a lot more bacteria in that flask that grew just overnight compared to the other ones. They had a, a new mutation that allowed them to eat, to metabolize a component of the nutrient broth that the other E. coli, the non-mutant E. coli, could not metabolize, a substance called citrate. It turns out that all of E. coli can metabolize citrate, but the trick is getting it from outside the cell into the cell. These uh, substances have to be brought inside the cell, and there's specialized machinery called transporters that, yes, transport the citrate from outside to inside. And usually that is turned off when there's oxygen in the environment. And that was the case in Lenski's experiment. But in this one case of the bacteria that were growing, that citrate transporter, that is the machine that is needed to bring the citrate into the cell, got turned back on. And now it, the mutant, the one with this new mutation, could import this food that the other ones couldn't. Because it had all the extra food, it outgrew the other bacteria and took over the flask. Okay. Now, this new paper in the journal eLife is reporting on this mutant strain. Are they heralding the, the start of a new species? Are they really excited about what's going on, or are they cautious? Well, yeah, they're kind of cautious. After they initially discovered six or seven years ago this citrate mutation, they were excited then because they thought that this was a, a great new ability of E. coli's. And there was speculation from them and others that maybe this mutant was on its way to a new species. But with the new results, they've really toned down that uh, optimism. And the, the reason is that, well, there, we don't really have to go much into the mutation that gave it this ability, the citrate. And as I said, the E. coli do have the ability to metabolize uh, citrate. They just have to turn on the machine that imports it into the cell. And there was a rearrangement of DNA in one bacteria in, in Lenski's experiment, which can happen accidentally because accidents happen all over the place, even when you're a bacteria trying to replicate your DNA. And so that turned it on. And 
since no other E. coli could eat citrate in the presence of oxygen, Lenski and co-workers said, well, you know, maybe this is a real speciation event. Maybe this will go on and form a completely new species. But then they further investigated that particular mutant and they grew it for another 2,500 generations, specifically in a, an environment just containing citrate. The other one contained citrate plus the normal food for the bacteria, which is the sugar glucose. And it turns out things have gone south. And so there are more muted about their claims now than they were back then. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask, what, what happened over time to this mutant strain of E. coli? Well, it turns out that this citrate mutation was not one that broke a gene. It just kind of rearranged things. But as I write in my new book, Darwin Devolves, it's always easy and fast to break genes, more easy and faster than, than it is to tinker with them to improve them. So subsequent to this citrate mutation, other mutations came along that improved the bacteria's ability to grow on citrate. But it turns out those were ones that broke genes. So before the citrate mutation came along, mutations improved growth, but they were ones that broke genes. Then the citrate mutation came along. That, that didn't break any gene. That really helped it grow in the circumstances. But then in support of this citrate mutation, new mutations in different genes came along, which broke those other genes. And that actually helped the citrate mutation metabolize uh, the citrate. In this new paper, they followed what happens even after those other changes. And it turns out that the E. coli growing on citrate are being selected by natural selection and they're breaking genes left and right. So the E. coli is throwing out genetic information because it gives a passing boost to its growth rate. But in the meantime, it's also becoming pretty fragile. In this new paper, interestingly, they show that the death rate of the bacteria is increasing considerably. In the ancestor of this whole experiment, oh, about 5 to 10% of the cells would die overnight after six or seven generations. Uh, but it turns out that after 30,000 generations, there would be 30% of the cells died. After 50,000, 40% of the cells died. And now with these further 2,500 generation citrate mutants, more than 50% of the cells die overnight. They are becoming increasingly fragile even in the environment that they are trying to adapt to. So I, I see this as, as pretty strong confirmation of my argument in Darwin Devolves 
that the fastest way of getting a slight boost in growth in a new environment is to break some gene. And, and breaking some genes helps, but you're throwing away genetic information and that, that gene is now, it's lost forever. Yeah. Well, it's quite a revolutionary idea to understand evolution more as a devolutionary process than one that evolves and builds up. That That is just completely upside down for me when I first came across that idea. But that is actually what's going on. At what point does the devolution occur? Is it at the family level? Does it allow for small-scale change? You know, where is this happening in in the process? How much does it allow? Well, uh, that's a good idea. It's interesting. And yeah, this process that Lenski is studying uh, and the breaking of genes, I, I write in, in Darwin Devolves that this occurs everywhere. You know, this it's not limited to bacteria, rather mammals and fish and birds and pretty much everything that's been looked at. The evolution one sees, the adaptation to different environments occurs because of breaking genes, not by improving genes. I go through an argument to say that, well, breaking genes can help. It can help to adjust, adapt a species to a particular environment. A good example of that is the one I start the book with is the polar bear. The polar bear is descended from the grizzly bear, the brown bear, and Scientists have shown in the past five years that the most important mutations that helped form a polar bear from the brown bear are ones that broke genes, that broke the genes involved in making the fur color of brown bears. And now the polar bear is white and other genes that helped in fat metabolism. And if you break some of them, the fat metabolism can go faster it turns out, because some of the genes control the speed of certain processes. And if you break them, the, the speed is uncontrolled and just continues. But anyway, yes, I, I argued in, the, in Darwin Devolves that this process of devolution can fit a species to a niche environment, to a, a place like the Arctic or something. But it can change a species only, well, it can, it can change a, a lineage at the level of species, which is the very lowest classification level in biology, or sometimes maybe at the level of genus, which is the next highest level. But it cannot change a lineage, a biological lineage, at the level of family. Family is kind of like cats versus dogs or bears versus raccoons. Those things are beyond the ability of Darwinian evolution to produce. I argue in the book that, therefore, it seems likely that positive new information has to be added to make a new family. Fascinating thesis. Well, in your book, you called the, the citrate mutation in this long-term study, a sideshow. And that's exactly what it's turning out to be, something on the side that briefly captures attention and imagination before fading from view upon a closer examination. What's the main stage take-home message then of this amazing long-term research of Lansky and his associates? 
Well, there's a couple lessons, but important to realize, first off, that this is our best information, our best example of how evolution works in nature. And the strong take-home lesson is that it's a lot easier just to break a gene, and sometimes breaking genes helps, like breaking that gene for making brown fur in a polar bear. That actually helped to throw out that information. In the E. coli experiment, dozens and dozens of genes have been broken in the course of the experiment. And those are all helpful. These are not ones that harm the bacteria in the circumstance. They are helpful changes. Nonetheless, they break genes. And so those genes are gone in the population forever. And another take-home lesson is that this devolutionary process is relentless. It will occur in all sorts of organisms, from bacteria to polar bears and everything in between. And that even if there's something that looks like it's a slight improvement, it will be followed by things and preceded by things that break genes. And so uh, much like ever since Darwin wrote his book, The Origin of Species, a number of skeptical biologists said, well, you know, this, is, this would be good for eliminating stuff, but it doesn't really explain how new things, new features uh, are constructed. And that was dismissed because most people didn't know how the uh, – nobody knew how the uh, molecular foundation of life worked back then. But now we see that such a view is confirmed – at the very foundation of life. Genes are complex things, and they're a lot easier to break than to make. And so Darwin's mechanism of random mutation plus selection is actually powerfully devolutionary in the sense that it breaks things rather than evolutionary in the sense of building things up. Well, so great to be able to unpack that and and understand that concept. It's uh, so important as we move forward here. Well, Mike, thanks for joining us for your time and for writing this awesome book, Darwin Devolves, which is still holding up to scrutiny and further examination. I appreciate your time. It's always delightful to, to talk to you. You can learn more about Mike Behe's work and his books at michaelbehe.com, spelling out his whole name, michaelbehe.com. And listen to other episodes that feature Behe, as well as many others in the intelligent design research community around the world, wherever podcasts are found, or via idthefuture.com. I'm Andrew McDermott for ID the Future. Thanks for listening. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute. For more information, visit intelligentdesign.org and idthefuture.com.